whistleblowing is about two things, really. It's about declaring the information. But from the organizational side, it's about reputation. It's about guarding the corporate reputation and guarding, if you're a high-level individual or executive in it, is about guarding your personal reputation as well. And depending on how threatened you feel, actually gives you the stance that you're going to take when dealing with the whistleblower. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have back with me Ian Foxley. Ian is well known in the compliance community for his story and his work. But he also now has, perhaps not new, but another venture that is going to help whistleblowers on a worldwide basis. And I asked him if he would visit with us, and he's kindly taken some time from his day to do so. So, Ian, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So for those who might not know, could you just give us a kind of a short summary of your experience, which led you to become so interested in whistleblowers and whistleblowing? Okay. In my first incarnation, I was an army officer. I was a communications officer in the British Army for 24 years, and I spent 14 years in commercial life. And I ended up as the program director for a two billion pound, that's about $3 billion defense contract to modernize all the communications for the Saudi Arabian National Guard. And I got out there based in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And within a few months, started finding things that just didn't seem right. And the red flags, as we call them, kind of mounted up until eventually I uncovered an extra subcontractor based in the Cayman Islands to whom we were paying a percentage, it turned out to be 15% of all invoices across the company, to unknown beneficiaries in the Cayman Islands. So I uh, objected to that, and, (laughs) and life got very difficult very quickly. And it gets a bit James Bondy in the de- inner details of it, but briefly, I fled the country overnight under threat of arrest and jail from a senior member of the Saudi royal family. And my own managing director got out, took it to the serious fraud office in London, and told the MOD that if they didn't also investigate it, I was going to accuse them of complicity to corruption. And it went to court. It took 10 years to get it to court. And it also triggered a bigger investigation into Airbus Group, who eventually took them another four years to do it. But they put their hands up and admitted to 10 other counts of corruption, totaling $22 billion worth of aircraft sales contracts. And they fined, along with the DOJ and the PNF, which is the equivalent in France, fined Airbus 3.6 billion euros. And then earlier this year, the company that I blew the whistle on, which triggered it all, pleaded guilty, and they fined them £30 million as well. And we've got one more trial to go, which I won't talk about because it's a trial of the individuals. The evil genius, as it were, is about to be uh, arraigned in court. So we better hold back on that bit. So, Ian, moving forward, one of the things about your story that intrigues me is that my father left the commercial world and went into academia in his late 30s. You have also gone into academia, and you're completing, uh, I believe, your PhD. But I wanted to maybe visit with you a little bit about your academic work, ask you what you're studying, and where you might be in that process. 
having found that uh, it took me about seven years to work it out that I was never going to get another job at the right level back in the commercial world, I got fed up applying for jobs, quite frankly, and getting knocked back time after time. The last one was a, a senior appointment where I was actually given a job running the emergency planning center in, in UK. And then the cabinet office objected because one of their major customers was the Saudi Arabian National Guard. <laughs> they thought it was a bit of a conflict of interest there. So I decided to go off and do a master's degree in applied human rights, looking particularly at what happens to whistleblowers and how they overcome it and what lessons we can learn from that for other human rights defenders. And that didn't actually quench my thirst for knowledge about whistleblowing. So I went straight into a PhD looking at the title of it is a political sociology of whistleblowing. It's an examination of why people do not speak up when they could do so. And I'm particularly using the case study where I blew the whistle to ask all the people around me why they didn't blow the whistle and then extract out of those reasons the root causes which stop people speaking up. And I'm, I'm about to finish my, my first draft of my thesis, which means I'm going to spend the next three months ripping it apart and putting it back together again till it's a polished article and submit it around Easter next year, ready for a viva, hoping to graduate by middle of next year. So in the United States, the process would be you submit your thesis or dissertation and then you defend that orally, called orals, in front of a committee. Do you have a similar process in the United Kingdom? Exactly the same. The examination board is not really a committee, though. It's a, an internal examiner from within the political department and an external examiner. And they also have present my supervisor and my thesis advisor. So it's a bit of a panel, but the two real examiners are the, the two professors, one of whom is learned in my area or the area that I'm investigating. So that'll be politics and probably from around the whistleblowing world. And the other professor is learned in research and research methodologies, because a PhD, of course, is a kind of license to research and conduct research thereafter. So they want to make sure you know what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and the ethics underneath that, of course. And what university? The University of York, which is one of the Russell Group. It's one of the, the core universities in the UK. It happens to be just about 10 miles up the road from where I live, which is quite convenient. But it's one of the centers for applied human rights in this country. Now we get to the reason I really wanted to sit down and visit with you, which is Parisia and the initiative you have begun with others. So could we talk a little bit about Parisia? What is it and why did you found or co-found it? Well, firstly, let's deal with the term Parisia. Parisia is an ancient classical term. It's a principle that was applied in ancient Greece. And I came across it through my studies of a philosopher, a French philosopher of the 20th century called Michel Foucault, who gave a series of lectures about Parhesia, looking at speaking truth to power. And it seemed to me that this principle of Parhesia, which is the affording of protection by the powerful to the vulnerable, in exchange for vital information, is a principle which seems to have disappeared from modern life. And actually, Foucault goes so far as to say that without Parhesia, we would not have democracy. Because if you aren't, don't allow people to question what rulers are doing, you end up with autocracy, you end up with oligarchs. And that's, that's very familiar in a lot of the world today. 
And the only way to actually balance that is allow people to question what the rulers are doing. And if you take that to its to its basic level, allowing people to blow the whistle, allowing people to speak truth to power, even though it's uncomfortable for them to hear, they recognize, and in, in the play that it really features in, which is the back eye by Euripides in 450 BC. So whistleblowing is not a new phenomenon, by the way. The king recognizes that he needs to know what the herdsman has to tell him, but he can only do so if he actually guarantees him protection and will take sanctions against those who bring reprisals against the herdsman. So it's a contract, it's a social contract. And I take that idea, and what I've done is that I've I've captured, if you like, the experts on whistleblowing in the UK, many of whom I've, I've known, A, through my studies, and B, through giving presentations and symposia over the last 10 years. And we've created an academic council to put all the experts in one room. And then we've also created a policy advisory group who know what needs to be done in political terms to change the law, to reform current laws or create new legislation to protect whistleblowers better in future. And then we actually ask the policymakers what they need to know in order to give a sound background and evidence for their law, and then ask the experts where that evidence is, who's done the research, and provide the concrete, substantial evidence to the policymakers and the politicians. So I've recorded about 3,000 podcasts, and uh, you're the first person to reference Michel Foucault. So you get an <laughs> extra gold star for that. Uh, one you. of my favorite, and certainly of the later French philosophers from the 20th century. And I wrote down the social contract of whistleblowing. Would that be a, a fair statement or a fair That's assessment? That is actually exactly what it's about. And now what we have to do is go out to big organizations, corporate organizations, government organizations, social welfare organizations, and remind them of, of this social contract, which they should naturally have between the organization and the individual to guarantee, if they're an employee, to guarantee them protection within the workplace, no matter who they're bringing the allegation against. And it doesn't matter if it's a CEO or a board member or even the chairman. This is a social contract between the organization and the individual. When you bring that message to corporate leaders, do they also understand the earlier part you referenced, which is the power of the information from the less powerful, from the employees that actually can be a business positive? Or are they not able to make that connection with the social contract component? Well, it depends who you're talking to and how vulnerable they personally feel about the information that's being disclosed. Whistleblowing is about two things, really. It's about declaring the information. But from the organizational side, it's about reputation. It's about guarding the corporate reputation. And guarding, if you're a high-level individual or executive in it, is about guarding your personal reputation as well. And depending on how threatened you feel, actually gives you the stance that you're going to take when dealing with the whistleblower. So how does your academic research into why people do not whistleblow support the overall component of the social contract of whistleblowing? Does it bring additional information? Does it help people understand the impediments or is it something else? This is beginning to sound like on my oral exam now. <laughs> We're down to the, the heart of the originality of the knowledge you're producing and its contribution to, to the academic 
world. So let me tackle it up front. I managed to line up about 40 individuals who I won't name because I guaranteed them anonymity. But to give you a flavor of it, they ranged from four-star generals right the way down through to fellow colleagues in the commercial organization. And they came from three different segments. One was military, one was, was civil servant, public servant, and the other was commercial. And they all responded in slightly different ways, depending on how close they felt to me as a kind of member of their ethnographic group. In general, they gave me about 25 different reasons as to why they didn't speak up. Now, I say reasons, I could have said excuses, except I don't want to be judgmental. I want to remain objective. But the reasons they gave me, I then had to kind of analyze to see whether they were, they were valid, whether they were truthful, whether they were trying to give me a sop as a kind of way of retaining their self-esteem and their esteem in front of me, or whether it was actually a real reason it got to the heart of the problem. And I actually broke it down to five what I call root causes. And this goes back to a guy called Kaishawa, who was the father of total quality management, Karo Ishigawa, who, who said, ask why, keep asking why. You ask the five whys, keep burrowing down. And I burrowed down to what I come up with as five root causes. The first is fear. The reason people don't speak up is fear. They are scared of losing their job, and with that, their money, and with that, their home, their livelihood, their health, and in, in some cases, their marriage. The second reason they don't speak up is because they fear that they're not going to be effective. They say, what's the point in me, in me, me doing it? Because I'm not big enough to fight an organization this big. They have all the power, they have all the money, they have all the resources, and therefore, why do it? And so they back off, or they just put their head down and look another way. The third major reason is that they're guilty. They're taking a brown envelope. They're taking their own reward from the wrongdoing, or they believe that they are guilty. And that's an element of complicity where they have been drawn into it in a kind of the boiling frog syndrome, before they know where they are, they're boiled. And they believe, therefore, that if they blow the whistle, they are vulnerable to legal action as well. And so they keep quiet. The fourth reason is that they don't have to. They're not brave enough to do so, but they assuage their self-esteem, their guilt complex, by doing something else. Now, in the public servants arena, this actually comes across as leaking. This is where you get unofficial leaks, a piece of information dropped on a private phone call or over a table to a journalist. And so they whistleblow, but they don't do it publicly. They do it very privately. Or they adopt a kind of passive resistance. They throw sugar into the petrol tank or sand into the cogs. They lose an invoice. They delay a meeting. They just hinder the process. And that isn't quite whistleblowing, but it's enough to allow them to believe that they have resisted. And the final reason is probably the most difficult. And that's the, the group of people who believe that they're right in doing what they're doing for strategic, political or economic reasons. You come back into the, the idea of dirty hands, Jean-Paul Sartre, les, les, les Mansart, or we do it because we have to do it for the greater good of the greater number. It's a consequentialist view, but it's warped to allow an excuse for corruption in one form or another.
And that's really the one that the politicians take when they say we have to do this. You know, we we allow the horrors that go on in the dark cells of Guantanamo Bay or, or centers of rendition. You know, waterboarding is allowable because it extracts information for the greater good of the greater number. You know, that's the excuse that's used. And people don't speak up about it because they they contravene the, the norms of the organization that are in place at the time. So the academic research I'm familiar with in the United States largely focuses on the positive effects of having a culture of whistleblowing within an organization or a culture of speak up so that not only is there a hotline, there is attention paid when a report comes in, it's properly assessed, the whistleblower is communicated with, action steps are taken, remediations made, and the whistleblower is, is, if not celebrated, at least recognized. In listening to your five root causes, and then if we worked back to all of the reasons that you originally identified, would you see a way that we might be able to wed kind of both sides so that companies that have a more positive culture, we could use those as models to try to ameliorate or I don't want to say fix, but somehow work on the root causes of why people do not whistleblowers or are we just whistling in the dark for something like that? (laughs) Well, I don't think you'll ever overcome the fear unless you can change the culture in the wide culture across a number of companies and organizations. The fear will always be present. And linked to that is the effectiveness. Unless we have more positive examples where whistleblowers have come forward and have survived the process and retained a career, retained their worth and their sense of worth to society, and have been shown to be effective in disclosing wrongdoing, then you'll never eradicate it. You'll never change also the idea of politicians finding a strategic or political or economic reason to explain what they're doing and why they should be doing it. I think we have another another element to this, and that is this, put a name on it, let's call it the Parhesiastic Contract. That's actually what Foucault called it. And let's, let's create it as kind of badge of honor for organizations that can say, we have a safe workplace. We care about our individuals. We care about those who join us and work with us. And because we care about them, like, like I look after my children or I look after my brother's children, I care about them. I don't attack them if they come to me because they find something wrong. I actually put an arm around them and say, hey, good, well done, thumbs up. I'm now going to get it sorted. Here, have a cookie. I look after them. And they then know that if something else happens, they can come back to me again. Not only that, but their brothers and sisters know that they can come to me and tell me something because they've seen how I've treated that individual. Why is it any different when we grow up? Why, when we leave college, do we suddenly hit this workplace environment where where it's not good to tell the truth anymore? This is ridiculous. So it comes back to changing the culture, it comes back to changing the education, and it comes back to changing the mindset in the organization. They've got to want to be good. You talked about the role of the Academic Council and the Policy Advisors Group in Parisia, but I'd like to ask you, how does the organization specifically support whistleblowers or people who may come to you with questions or seeking guidance? Well, we're not set up to do that. That doesn't mean that we don't do it. And in fact, this week, <laughs> I've had three, three people who phoned me up or contacted me through 
through LinkedIn or WhatsApp to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm in a situation. What do I do? And I never turn them away. You can't turn them away. I've been there. I've done that. I felt the need and I'm not about to turn my back on anybody else who needs that kind of support. I help them as far as I can. And then I point them at what I find are, are the trusted organizations. In UK, it's, it's people like, like Protect. In the USA, it's people like the Government Accountability Project. And then, you know, you speak to Professor Tom Devine in, in Gap. He's got over 30 years experience in helping and supporting and protecting whistleblowers. So there are agencies around that you can go to. I just need to be able to point them in the right direction. What is the Good Business Charter and how did Teresia achieve or receive this designation? The Good Business Charter is an organization set up by a guy called Julian Richer, who's a local philanthropist and entrepreneur. He's he's actually the mastermind behind a a music organizer, retailer called Richer Sounds. And he's taken an element of his wealth and invested it into an organization that actually is, lies in parallel to ourselves. It just believes in doing business correctly. There's nothing wrong in, in doing business. There's nothing wrong with the original business model. But there are certain ethics and moral principles that you ought to apply when you do business. Part of that is treating your customers correctly, treating your suppliers correctly, treating your workforce correctly. You know, there are basic rules on how we live in a society. They observe those in the marketplace. And that's what we do as well. So we're literally hand in hand in our our moral values, I think. One of the other things that intrigues me about your story, Ian, is you have seen now over 10 years of the scope of not only whistleblowing, but the change in attitudes towards whistleblowing or the perhaps evolution of whistleblowing. And I wondered, uh, sort of looking back where you started, where you are now, and maybe ask you to look down into the future, where do you see this type of movement that you and others in Parisia are a part of and where it might be in 2025? And will it become even more important in the kind of next phase of corporate existence? I think when I blew the whistle in 2010, being a whistleblower was still a dirty word certainly over in, in the United Kingdom. And I think times have changed. I set out to change that because, A, I refuse to be a victim. And when whistleblowers who become victims assume that persona, they're on a losing battle. I mean, part of it is perhaps because I'm, a, I'm now an, an aged and creaking ex-rugby player and paratrooper. You know, yee-haw, I'm airborne. Yeah. And so there's a kind of fighting spirit there, which refuses to accept that bad will win. Evil does not rule the day. You can fight through it. You just have to, A, you have to lose your ego, and you can change the world if you're willing to lose your personal ego and enjoin with other people who feel the same way. And secondly, you have to spread the message. You know, the old line about, you know, preach the good word. Well, the good word is there, and it needs to be spoken in public. You need to be able to bring people with you. You need to show them that you can fight through and win. I have partial vindication this year with with the prosecution of Airbus, with the prosecution of GPT, the company in Saudi Arabia, and with the prospective prosecution of the individuals. And that's enough. I would like to be compensated (laughs) for all the, the, the pain and heartache and the loss of job and career in between. I mean, that's 12 years. Yeah, I think there's a debt owed there. 
But I think the greater debt is changing the way that business is done. I think we're in a zeitgeist. I think the message has been passed up. I need to task a master's student somewhere to look at the number of references to whistleblower in 2010 and the references to whistleblower in 2021. Because I think you'll find that quantitatively, it's a significant difference. I think the message is being passed around. I think we're in a time of social change. I think people do care about what happens to other people, not only in business, but in the world around them. You see it in climate change. You see it in the movement for anti-corruption, in, certainly in, in my country and across Europe with the EU directive on, on whistleblower protection. And I think the ball is rolling. It's now going to gather speed. And looking at what's been happening in my country in the last week, the last month about corruption, I think it's time to change. And I think that message has got to get out to the politicians. You know, you get on this locomotive because it's rolling. And if you stand in the way, you're just going to get crunched as it goes forward. So get on board, attract the voters with the right kind of message. And then we will hold you to account because we want to see change and we want to see real change. So in 2025, yeah, we'll have done it. We won't have, I think at the moment, America is leading the way in its whistleblower protection. And I think we've got to catch up. And if not, then become the world leader again. That's my vision. Ian, can't think of a better way to end this episode on that note. But before we go, I wanted to ask, if listeners wanted any more information on the topics you've touched on or to become perhaps involved or learn more about Paresia, where could they go? Well, the first place would be to go to Paresia, P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A dot org dot UK. And they can find out what we're doing and how we're progressing. And there's a network there, the Parhesia Network, they can sign up to, which is where we can chat and talk about it. Or they can find us on LinkedIn, because I've, I've put a, a Parhesia site on LinkedIn as well. So I'd be delighted to pick up a conversation. And if any other academics want to join our wider network, then that's great. Ian, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with me. I learned a lot and I've really enjoyed this. And I hope that we can continue this conversation. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.